Please stand as you are able for today's New Testament lesson from the book of Luke, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year, until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of God for the people of God. Good morning, friends. I'm Reverend Casey Orr. I'm one of the associate pastors here at BUMC, and I am so blessed to be with you this morning on the very first day of spring and on the very last day of spring break. Pastor Davis is at the very end of his travels home from the Holy Land with a group of pilgrims from this church. It sounds like it was a beautiful trip, and we will look so forward to hearing about it and seeing photos from their journey. It's good to be with you today. You're joining us right here or from home, from the road maybe. Be safe. We welcome all of you. And I hope those of you who have made your way home from vacations are feeling refreshed. Maybe those of you who had a whirlwind tour of college campuses are narrowing down the possibilities. I hope that for those of you who didn't even realize it was spring break until this very moment, enjoyed a few days of lighter traffic. It's all good. This week, though, my family went to Magic Kingdom for one day while we were on vacation in Florida. We decided to go on a little roller coaster called the Barnstormer. Both kids were just tall enough to go, and it looked fun, harmless enough. And my husband, Michael, what a guy, decided to video James, our six-year-old, who was right there next to him to document his first ever roller coaster. The video is truly... One of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. It begins with the click up and James is looking out over the park like, I am the king of this world. This is the best moment of my life. And then the roller coaster drops just a little bit and his face turns to very grave concern, like I have made a terrible mistake. And for 30 seconds, the expressions on his face move constantly from excitement to fear to relief. And I'm just here to tell you that the scripture reading for today might have put you on a very similar journey to that experience. Hopeful promise to regret, to concern, to where is this possibly going, to maybe a bit of relief. But we're going to go on that journey together, and I'm going to be right there next to you. I will not let you fall out of the car. Not a chance. So today, we find ourselves on this third journey, this third Sunday of Lent. And this third Sunday of Lent, we're in this series called Walk This Way. 
We remember in Luke 9 when Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem and he began his journey to the cross. And so today, we, all of us, continue to move with Jesus. We walk his journey with him along a path on which we will be met with great resistance, a path on which we will be met with rejection and obstacles, alarming prophecy, and confusing parables. So let us continue on our way together, walking this way with Jesus. And we do, we gather with a crowd, a crowd of Jesus' fellow Galileans, his people who are listening to his teaching. And while they have heard what he had said, it landed on really heavy hearts and really anxious minds, and they are very distracted as he's talking, distracted by current events and trying to just make sense of tragedy. This crowd is no different than you. You're here, you're present, you're some of you in the room, but you have heavy hearts, you do, you have anxious minds, you're worshiping, you're here, you're singing, you're listening to me and you're receiving this message, but I suspect that all of this is falling on top of your grave concern for our own current events. Concern for Ukraine. Your hearts ache as you watch the pursuit of power result in a total disregard for human life. You're here with each other, you're here with me, but you also just wanna understand what's going on in our world and why it's happening and what it means for you, what it means for your future, what it means for our shared future. You're distracted too, maybe, by your own suffering. Someone you love is sick. You're waiting on your own test results. You aren't really moving through grief the way that you thought you were going to. You have a decision to make that's just kind of torturing you. You're fighting to stay sober. The baby that you have prayed for just isn't on the way yet. You aren't sure that the plans that you set out for are actually going to ever pan out. But this crowd, this crowd is far less dignified than you. They can't wait another minute for Jesus to speak to their very particular pain. They need Jesus to say something. So some from the crowd reported the incident to Jesus as if he didn't know. Surely you've heard. Surely, Jesus, surely you've heard what Pontius Pilate did to our people. He slaughtered them. They were faithfully worshiping in the temple in Jerusalem. They were offering their sacrifices. And he sent his soldiers into our sacred space and had our people killed. It was horrifying. And they were begging for sense to be made of it. And they want Jesus to hear their story and to condemn the violence or explain what these Galileans did to deserve such treatment. Because baked into their bones is a theological teaching that there is a reason for all human suffering. And it usually points back to a past sin in the victim's life or even in the victim's ancestry. They assumed that God is responsible for everything that happens on a micro level, and God is just, and therefore suffering must be the result of human sin. This, of course, leaves no room for human freedom. 
But still, we see evidence of this all throughout scripture. Most familiar maybe to some of us is John 9, 2, when the disciples encountered a blind man and asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus pushes against the understanding and is now reiterating that the answer is neither. That's not how sin and suffering work. So Jesus addresses their weighty concern, but only as a vehicle to get back to the point that he actually wants to make. So he asked them, do you really think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, that they were actually worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Or that those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than everyone else in all of Jerusalem? No, of course not. Jesus rejects this. Their deaths were not a punishment by God. And the survivors were not specifically spared by God. It wasn't an act of God at all. It was an act of evil. In the case of the Galileans, it was evil carried out by a tyrannical governor. In the case of Siloam, evil in the form of a random accident. Suffering and death are just simply unpredictable and inevitable for all of us. But even so, you will hear and you have probably heard very faithful Christians suggest that victims of a tornado must have strayed from God or that someone who faced a struggle or an obstacle must just not be living right. That is harmful. In some places it is abusive and that is inconsistent with Jesus' very own instruction. And while I'm here, I might as well say that suffering is also not part of an all-knowing God's plan for the world. Some of you know that I lead the grief class here a few times a year, and it's one of my greatest blessings to gather around with folks who are ready to process their losses. And one of the things that we do really early in the class is work through the incredibly unhelpful things that truly well-meaning people say to us in our pain. Everything happens for a reason, you know. God won't give you more than you can handle. God must be teaching you something. God must have needed another angel. And to that I say no thanks. No thanks to all of that. In case no one has ever said this to you, I'm going to. God does not send pain and suffering your way to challenge you or to test you or to punish you or to teach you something. God does not take people from you or push you to your breaking point. God simply doesn't need more angels. It is not God's will that one house should be destroyed while their neighbors is spared. It is not God's will that one patient dies while another recovers. And for what it's worth today, it is definitely not God's will that one team wins while another loses. So why do some people suffer? Why do tragedies happen? We honestly can't explain it away. And Jesus doesn't even try in our text. 
But I feel incredibly confident that when people suffer, God holds them in comfort. And when people are grieving, God draws them into light. And when people can't catch their breath, God draws even closer. And when people meet unexpected deaths, Jesus embraces them the second they transfer to the life eternal. And when people are stunned by sudden loss, Jesus weeps with them. And I would say that I accidentally just preached a mini sermon inside a bigger sermon, but I did in fact mean to do it, and I'm getting back to the text now. So Jesus pushes beyond their question about this suffering, and he focuses on his mission. He keeps forward motion. In Luke 4, he defined his mission from the text. He had read from the scroll and declared, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so now that mission has ramped up. There is a new urgency to it. And with his face turned toward Jerusalem, his tone is changing. No, No, the Galileans were not worse sinners than all the other Galileans. And no, the 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell were not worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem. No, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will perish just as they did. He said, yikes. That is an unexpected intensity, a profound urgency, and it is incredibly alarming. But Jesus might simply be saying, stop trying to make sense of all of it. You're never going to. Stop trying to connect a cause to an effect. You can't. Stop trying to draw a line between sin and suffering. It can't be drawn. Just worry about what you can control and do it now. The urgency that Jesus expresses grows out of the reality that life is terribly fragile. And the fragility of life demands urgency. And the urgent message that Jesus repeats twice is this. Repent and repent now. The gospel according to Mark is known as the primary source gospel. The earliest ever written, one that the others actually used as some source material in their writing. And in the opening words of Mark's gospel, we meet John the Baptist proclaiming baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And just a few verses later, the very first words recorded to have been spoken by Jesus upon his arrival in Galilee are these. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. The Common English Bible translation opens up the meaning of repentance here. It says, now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Change your hearts and lives and trust this good news. Change your hearts and lives and trust this good news. These are the first words that Jesus is recorded speaking And that has to mean something. But although John the Baptist and Jesus have both been putting in the work, calling on people to repent and to be fruitful, many of them have just simply resisted. They've delayed his pleading. 
but now it is time to get serious. So Jesus uses these really unpredictable, unexplainable events to actually encourage his audience to change what they can, to change their hearts and their minds and their very lives. This is God's will, that they would repent that they would change their hearts and lives, that they would take a look around and take a look within and truly turn to God. Look within. What have you so stubbornly held onto because it is your will while failing to discern what is God's will? Where have you tried to build up your own kingdom rather than been a laborer in expanding God's kingdom? Where have you seen things with your own eyes rather than with a God lens of grace and compassion? And you know your choices and loyalties and your thoughts, your behaviors, all of it, is it driven by ambition and status or by fear and anxiety or by the hope of God's kingdom? What is driving everything you do? Now look around at your home, at your church, at your country, at your school, at your world. Where have we as a people turned toward things that really just don't fit into God's kingdom? Where have we stumbled into idolatry without even realizing it? Where have we been so complacent in the face of injustice and discrimination? And where do we allow the evil isms of our world to influence the way we live day to day? Is our community me-centered or is it Christ-centered? Are we consumer-oriented or missionally-minded? Are we making ourselves feel good or are we making transformed disciples of Jesus Christ? We can take that inventory today. And as we take our inventories and we do the work of repentance, we may assume that we are supposed to remain very serious and sullen about this, very melancholy, very mournful, pious, and quite pensive. But I just really don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. Repentance for us, it bends toward freedom. It bends toward self-discovery and a life of purpose and fulfillment. Repentance arcs in the direction of God's will and it bends toward joy. Repentance allows us to hop back on the path with Jesus with a renewed strength and security and it gives us a fighting chance at truly walking in his way. What an invitation It is to repent, to change our hearts and lives, and to believe this truly good news. Upon the first hearing of this text, we think that it's going nowhere good and nowhere fast. But the the prophecy that we've heard paired with the parable of the fig tree is actually spectacular. It is beautiful, and it is grace-filled and generous. For the most part, the parable of the fig tree is layering additional meaning for Jesus' call to repentance. A man had a fig tree in his vineyard for three years, disappointment after disappointment, lack of fruitfulness, not a fig in sight. So the disappointed vineyard owner instructs the gardener, just cut it down. I'm done coming back expecting to see a fig. I'm over this tree, cut it down. Let the soil that it's been occupying and the space that's been occupied by this tree be used for a tree that's actually gonna produce me some fruit. It's a waste as it is. And he's not being cruel. It's true. He's being a good steward of the land. 
But his instruction still really stings because we instinctually identify with the tree. I'm the fruitless fig tree, aren't I? That's where we place ourselves in the story. So if it's us, then the gardener's presence in the story is a massive relief. The tree, while dismissed by this owner, is not on its own. It has an advocate in the gardener who tends to it, and the gardener intercedes on its behalf, pleading for another year. Give it one more year, just one more year. I'm going to dig around it. I'm going to till the ground. I'm gonna put manure on it. I'm gonna make sure it's well fertilized. I will give it a incredibly nurturing environment. It will have constant care. I will give it its very best chance at producing fruit. Please just give it one more year recognizing the fragility of the fig tree's place in the vineyard, he appeals to urgency. And with tremendous urgency, the gardener absolutely refuses to give up on this pathetic tree. There's grace and there's hope. Don't cut it down. But there's also urgency. Give it one more year. In the gospel of second chances, Jesus refuses to give up on us. Because Jesus doesn't just insist that we repent and then walk away hoping that we find our way. He's going to do everything he can to help us. He's going to dig at our hardening around our hearts. He's going to nourish us with rich teaching and lead us into nurturing places. We will be under his constant care and he will give us the very best shot at the fruitful life of discipleship. And this is the source of our hope. Our hope is found in extravagant mercy, but we have to stay after it. We can't get complacent. My friend Gil Rindle is a terribly gifted consultant and teacher and coach and pastor, and under his guidance, I have done truly daunting work that I felt in no way equipped to do, but because of his leadership, I was equipped to do that work. And I vividly remember the first time I heard him tell a story that he's told many times, and I want to share it with you today. It's about a mother who sends her young son out on a pitch dark night to be sure the barn door is locked on the family farm. He leaves and comes back inside almost instantly. And when she asks what's wrong, he says he can't do what she asked because the night is just too dark and he can't see the barn from the house. And so the mother hands him a flashlight and says, go out again, try again, only to have him return the second time in less than a minute. And when she says, what's wrong this time? What's wrong now? You had a flashlight. The son says that he still can't find the barn because the flashlight isn't strong enough to see that far. And the mother sends him out a third time, explaining that he doesn't need to see the barn from the house. Just walk to the end of the light. Gil has written about this little story, and he says, when one walks to the end of the light, the next portion of the path is revealed. All the young boy needs to get started is a conviction that the barn lies out there in a particular direction rather than some other direction. Then as he goes, the path will be revealed sufficiently to allow him to proceed and make corrections in the direction until the barn is found. We know the direction of the barn. The barn is God's coming kingdom. And that looks like a world filled 
with the collective fruit of the Spirit. That kingdom is filled with love and joy and peace. That kingdom is overflowing with patience and kindness and goodness, and it is managed by gentleness and faithfulness and by self-control. That kingdom that we are oriented toward is our hope, our barn, and we set out toward it. We don't have to have it all figured out right now. We don't have to be able to see the full picture of what a completely changed heart and life look like. We don't have to have a polished, perfect vision of the kingdom of God. But if we know that the barn is the kingdom of God and we know that it's in that direction, we know that we are to change our hearts and lives. We are to repent We are to set out our lives on the path of Jesus and walk this way. But if we are honest, that seems really far off from where we are right in this moment. The distance between where we are right now today and where Jesus is calling us to go seems far too great and we simply can't see it in the distance. And so I wonder if we can just commit together today to start from wherever each of us finds ourselves on our path following Jesus and just walk to the end of the light. You don't have to make it all the way to the barn today, but pick up your flashlight and walk to the end of the light. We're not going to see the kingdom of God realized in totality today, but we can each make a decision to set off on the path toward it. We can each decide to do the next right thing, to repent, to change our hearts and lives and believe this good news that for today, we just have to take the first step in faith with Jesus to get to the end of the light. And the gardener will be there with us for every single step. Amen.